Hello and welcome back to Coin Scrum Markets. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Kendrick Nguyen, uh, CEO at Republic. Hi, Kendrick. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And also welcoming uh, B. Fatier, Head of Investments at Process Ventures. Hey, B. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So, um, as we were just saying before, maybe a little bit off topic with all the uh, kind of frenzy and headlines around NFTs in recent weeks and, you know, six months of DeFi before that. Um, but if we look back a few years, um, one of the hot topics from like 2017 onwards was around uh, security tokens and how, um, you know, that was going to potentially become a new asset class and open up investments more broadly to a wider audience. Um, I think there was, has been a lot of work done in that space over the last few years, but I think um, you know, there, there was lots of uh, regulatory hurdles for companies to overcome to get up and running, but we're seeing quite a few of those platforms come to market now. Um, and Republic, um, which is uh, one of uh, Process's uh, portfolio companies, you know, you've been around since, I guess, before um, you know, the whole tokenization topic really came to the fore, Kendrick, but you know, I know it's something that you've been paying close attention to and you've taken quite a measured approach to how you've decided to enter the market. Um, but before we start, should we just uh, get a little background on each of you? B, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, happy, happy to give you a bit, a bit of introduction on myself because uh, I won't bore you with uh, my, my career um, details. But what I can say is that I sort of ping-ponged a lot from sort of investor to operator uh, throughout my, um, you know, uh, throughout my decade or so in, in venture. Um, so, you know, I started off as a fairly traditional path of, you know, I, I in banking and private equity, uh, then decided to go startup side, um, joined a, an early stage company, um, kind of got to, to see firsthand what Ken is going through now, <laughs> uh, which is, I guess, catering to and raising lots of capital from Silicon Valley, uh, as well as scaling a business that's in hyper growth mode. So again, got to enjoy that for uh, a three year journey. Uh, and then uh, joined Process uh, about, I guess, four, uh, about four years ago uh, in the capacity of um, uh, heading our early stage investments um, here in the Americas. Um, but also a lot of our frontier technology investments. So that includes things like blockchain, uh, synthetic biology, uh, anything with really kind of a deep science bent uh, tends to be a passion of mine. So uh, that tends to be my coverage area. Cool, thank you. Uh, and Ken, tell us a little bit about yourself, your life before Republic and uh, you know, when you started the company. Uh, thank you, Paul. And similar to be I had a prior career in traditional finance and was a securities lawyer uh, before uh, going back to academia, also in law, uh, and joining AngelList, uh, the um, accredited-only crowdfunding platform uh, back in 2013-2014. Uh, and through that experience, uh, worked pretty closely with Washington, D.C., uh, to change this little law that prohibited non-millionaires to invest privately for 80 years since the Great Depression in the 1930s all the way to 2016. So in 2016, it was a tiny piece, you know, four lines of regulation that really changed, in my opinion, um, the next century of the capital market. And it really opened up the door uh, for retail capital into the private markets. Well, that's the promise anyway. I think anything that uh, that's worthwhile takes a little bit of time to mature. And anything that's worthwhile and heavily regulated naturally take a little bit longer. Uh, but when we started out at Republic, uh, the focus was just to enable 
everyday folks to invest first in private companies, in startups, in small businesses. Uh, and uh, I also uh, was a co-founder and the interim CEO for CoinList, um, which is another company within the AngelList ecosystem. Uh, and that was 2017. And uh, around that time, that was when we ended up combining uh, the potential of distributed leisure technology into uh, the world that we very much believe will, will thrive and will mature, which is private investing for the retail public. Um, but that's how it got us to where we are today is the you know, one-stop shop investment platform for um, all things private investing uh, accessible to everyone everywhere uh, of all income uh, and, and uh, net worth uh, spectrum. Uh, but we'll, we'll dive into that in a bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess, I guess um, you know, the US was slightly late to that party to a degree, because I think in Europe, um, you know, some of those crowdfunding platforms had opened up a bit earlier. Um, and I guess this is part of the discussion around security tokens in general. It's like, you know, tech, tech moves at uh, light speed and regulators move at glacial speed. Um, and it's how we marry the two together. And I think a lot of people are finding that out. And I'm sure you'll have some, uh, some, some, a few stories to uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, provide some lessons to our audience around that. But just purely on the idea of security tokens, you know, in principle, it's great. You know, we've got this very updated um, market infrastructure for trading and clearing and settling equities. You know, it can take days to settle your equities. And now we have blockchain. It's like, well, why can't we do this in kind of minutes or you know, seconds even in certain cases? Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I guess companies that have kind of dived in to explore this space have found it's not that easy and basically around, you know, regulations have been the big hurdle. So I guess from both of you, maybe Ken, start with you just because, uh, you know, you've been at the cold face on this. Um, from your perspective, you know, what is the real opportunity? What is most exciting about, you know, being able to tokenize securities, use DLT, blockchain technology, but what are the real, you know, is there anything else apart from, is it just simply regulation or is there anything else that, you know, people should be thinking about in terms of how and when this can really come to fruition? Of the myriad use cases for blockchain, there are two attributes that I think um, it will fundamentally change the world of investing as we know of it. Uh, fractionalization, the ability to fractionalize, break anything, art, NFT, uh, a share of a company into, you know, one million pieces or a thousand pieces, uh, and the ability to automate things like payment settlement, uh, KYC, AML accreditation. When you combine those two things to make it far easier for people to transact and far cheaper for people to transact, you're gonna enable a lot more people to come into, uh, into the ecosystem. And if you look at the global uh, economy and how much of the world, uh, typically outside of London and LA and New York, that people are still you know, putting money under their mattresses uh, and putting gold bars in like safes. And if you can unlock and enable that lower middle class, you know, young professional or even a student in Malaysia and in India and in Vietnam in Iran, to invest, uh, I think it's gonna usher in, uh, I think a new world of prosperity and connectedness. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Process and B uh, and, and Division as a global uh, investment firm, which is very, very different than much of the venture ecosystem is something that we find uh, particularly compelling. Um, okay, well, thanks, Ken. Um, so B, from your perspective, you know, um, you've invested in Republic, so you obviously buy into Ken's vision. 
um, and see the opportunities for uh, opening up you know, these markets to uh, a more retail client base. Um, and I guess we'll discuss it soon. Probably doesn't come without risk. We've seen a huge rush of all sorts of people coming into, whether it's trading on Robinhood, whether it's trading crypto, everyone seems to be an investor these days. Um, and I guess it will be uh, part of the responsibility of these platforms to help educate that audience because they are very new. And I do know as an ex-trader that, you know, guaranteed you're coming and your first few trades will be wins and then uh, things might turn around. So that's maybe an important one. We can touch on that later. But um, you know, looking at this from the VC standpoint, um, do you see opportunities in terms of this technology, you know, tokenizing securities? Do you see efficiencies for you as a firm going forward or for your industry in general? Uh, absolutely. So I'll, I'll kind of start off saying that I, I actually don't envy the role of regulators here, because I think uh, you're right that everyone is a is a trader and an investor in a bull market, right? And 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 it's easy to um, you know start to have early wins. And as a, as a consumer that maybe is not as uh, financially sophisticated, to start to to get more and more bullish when everything tends to be sort of trading up. So I think the role of regulators here. Uh, with regards to consumer protection is going to be very important. Um, so there's this very kind of uh, interesting dance, right, between financial inclusion and consumer protection. Um, and I think, you know, historically what we've seen is that uh, regulators have um, erred on the side of exclusion um, and, and have, uh, as a result, kind of created a market, market dynamic where as more and more of the um, value uh, of technology as accrued to equity investors, you're starting to see wealth disparity that I think is increasingly problematic. So for us, we kind of look at that and say, okay, maybe we need to look at the laws and we need to think about platforms that you know, are compliantly looking to widen that base, that, that, that pyramid starts to get wider and wider and you can give retail uh, some more access than what we've historically seen. I think the good news with the SEC is that I think they've been actually fairly responsive, right? They, they, they've seen, and this is actually, I think, uh, honestly, thanks to a lot of the work that Republic is doing, um, because uh, I think it takes a lawyer to be able to kind of really kind of push the regulators and then really make them see sort of how the world is, is trending. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they, 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 they really played ball. They see it too, right? But again, if you go back to the last 10 years, if you go back to the 2008 to today, a lot of the gains have, have accrued to equity, right? And, and, and it's something that, um, you know, if we are to... Um, I think have a, a functioning society that is inclusive. We need to kind of think about um, some of those laws and, and really try to to push the barrier there. So, um, so I think that's that, again. I go back to I don't actually envy the job of the regulators because I think this is a very tough dance. Um, but I think it is. You know, if you look at Robinhood, they've done a, a fairly good job of this in the public markets. And if you go on Republic, they're they're replicating this same sort of ethos on the private side. Um, you know, you do need to to educate retail on some of the ups and downs, some of the volatility, some of the different financial products that they're investing in. Um, but it's uh, I think the the old adage or the bias that somehow retail can't get it. 
is not the right bias, right? It's it's one where, you know, I think you through technology, through education can actually sort of bring them up the learning curve uh, and really kind of give them the opportunity to really participate in some of the gains that are being generated on the equity side. Um, so on, uh, in terms of your question, and that was a long-winded way of talking about two things that are entirely unrelated to what you asked. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> I said we'd come back to it, but I wanted to touch on it anyway, so absolutely fine. So I actually think it's, it's interesting. On the institutional side, um, the wins are also obvious, right? So I think if you go and look at sort of the administrative costs of um, both on the public and even private side of, of being able to trade securities or being able to participate in any type of uh, securities transaction, um, the, the costs are really exorbitant and, and really not sort of in line with um, you know, some of the simplicity of even some of these transactions. I think that the the automation um, uh, that you see uh, through blockchain, the, the uh, ability, again, like, uh, like Ken said, to leverage um, things like automated at KYC, have wallets, that it, these things are they're obvious, right? So the cost savings are, for us, I think, um, you know, uh, easy to see. Uh, but I think the true revolution is around this sort of fractionalized ownership, retail participation, um, widening the base. Uh, and I think that's that's the part that definitely excites me very much. Yeah, yeah. But as, as, as has come up already in this conversation, the regulators are there. Um, and I do, if I think back to like 2013, 2014, um, everyone was trying to position themselves and say, right, where's the best place to set up? You know, is it going to be in Europe? Is it going to be in the Far East? Uh, you know, Japan was very proactive and getting kind of regulations um, kind of clarified quite early on. And everyone was looking at the US saying, oh, well, you've got to go and register in 50 states as an MSB. And then you've got the bit license coming in New York and no one can trade in New York. Um, and the worry was, the concern was that people might be forced out of the US or have to look elsewhere. But that does seem to change, have changed quite a lot. Um, we had Richard Johnson, CEO at Texture Capital, which is um, you know, a primary issues platform that's being licensed out of New York. Um, and I remember speaking to him and you know, when, he start, when they started their SEC application, the SEC was, you can have a blockchain, but it's like got to have one node and you've got to run it. Um, but by the time the application was completed, that kind of, you know, the, the position had changed quite considerably. And, you know, as we've seen more recently um, for, uh, you know, with um, the authorization for banks to use public networks for clearing and settlement, you know, it's changed quite drastically. So, uh, Ken, from your position with the negotiations that you've obviously had over the last few years, uh, you know, what's your perspective on that? And do you think uh, the U.S. is actually kind of getting on the front foot now? You know, what we touched on uh, earlier, I think is a lot, uh, uh, um, she corrected a misconception that a lot of people have in the space that somehow regulators are here to be, uh, you know, against innovation and being overly restrictive. No, whether it's in the UK or the US, there's one role that the SEC or the equivalent of the SEC in Canada or the UK is making sure that investors are protected, adequately protected, but they do have a strong interest in promoting the capital markets. And when you look at something like equity crowdfunding, 
outside of the blockchain space in the UK, it's been 10 years, not a single instance of fraud. And so when you look at the earlier phase of ICO in the US, you know, non-compliance, you know, non-regulated in any way, there's no doubt that there have been, you know, more than just a few cases whereby uh, investors felt like they were defrauded. But when you apply this regulatory framework and ensure that people have to disclose things, we have to, you know, make some, some baseline level of, of uh, SEC uh, disclosure and requirement, naturally, you're going to have a more credible pool of entrepreneurs, of creators availing themselves of that. There's no question in my mind that from my experience in the past few years, uh, it's, I mean, tremendous how progressive and how willing to play ball and lack of a better term that regulators have been, um, have been, uh, you know, taking the approach toward, toward a blockchain and toward token offerings in general. Uh, there's no question in my mind that you're going to see more clarity uh, and it's not going to get any more conservative, meaning right now status quo is that securities laws apply in most cases. Uh, and the question is for both the private markets and regulators, how do we continue to make the current rules and regulations work for the industry and have a dialogue to make things a little bit easier? And most recently, uh, last week, last Monday, the cap on equity crowdfunding in the US went from $1 million to $5 million. It's a very sizable increase. And that was a you know, the end result of a few years of conversations. Uh, again, uh, Paul, you touched on earlier that these things take a little bit of time. Regulators take longer uh, to, to uh, you know, to change their positions, but that's their job. They have a very clear role in society. Uh, and, you know, let's not forget that in the US securities law came about because of the Great Depression, because of non-compliance leading to massive fraud. Uh, and so things are moving in a sensible way way. But combining that, what we said earlier is that the narrative that retail investors don't know or are not sophisticated, I think that's clearly uh, changing. And whether it's us or, or an SEC uh, commissioner, uh, I think everyone uh, is seeing that and changes are bound to follow. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. And B, you know, do you think this is something you know, some people would say, well, the regulations as they stand aren't fit for purpose. They need to be kind of redesigned from the ground up. <clears throat> Are you in that camp or do you think that this is an iterative process? And as Ken says, you know, you've got the ear of the regulators. They are keen to, you know, um, support innovation. But, you know, they've also got to protect a huge economy and a huge, uh, you know, cohort of uh, consumers out there. Because, you know, as we have seen, if, if people... Um, can abuse markets or you know can defraud people. Unfortunately, there are people that will. So, do you, do you think that we just have to be really patient and uh, and just the, the industry needs to work with regulators gradually over time? Yeah, you know, my experience has been that um, uh, regulation uh, tends to change incrementally, right? So, I think if if you sort of start start with the premise that it's all broken and that we need to start from scratch. Um, that doesn't tend to be a very fruitful dialogue. Um, I go back to, you have to look at intentions, right? And you, and, and I think if you look at the regulators, the role of the SEC is to protect the consumer. So I think they're trying to, uh, 
as best they can sort of keep up with an industry that is, is, is moving really at lightning speed. And, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there are a lot of projects that I think uh, get fairly cutesy with their, with their legal sort of, um, uh, I guess, uh, stipulations, if you will. Um, so they, you know, they'll, they'll find out that maybe something is square, not, you know, squarely um, compliant um, and they'll tweak little things to try to kind of circumvent regulation in, in a meaningful way. So I think, um, you know, the, the, the regulators are trying to keep up. Again, I go back to, I, I truly believe that the intention of the regulators is to strike this balance, this dance, right, between consumer uh, protection and inclusion. Um, and maybe, again, we can say that they need to move a little bit to the right or the, a little bit to the left. But at the end of the day, it's, um, it's, it's change that has to come incrementally. Um, I, I, I don't think that, you know, there, there are the, a lot of people who have this dogmatic belief that the system is trying to keep, you know, the common man down. Um, at least my experience um, hasn't, hasn't been that. I think it's, again, there, it's, it's a new field. Um, we have to go back. It's interesting. I was actually looking um, at a magazine cover that a friend of mine was sending from the 1990s. And people forget this, that the way that securities used to be traded um, was not only paper, but it used to be announced. It literally used to be announced in ads, right? So this is this isn't that long ago, right? So it, it's it's not like we we've um, you know uh, the regulators are, are trying to again keep things very very slow. It's just innovation is moving very quickly, um, and so I think again I, I go back to um, I, I don't think the SEC is not here to play ball. I do wish, um, and I say this from firsthand experience that. Um, you know, they, they were providing maybe more speedy guidance um, because I think one of the challenges of, of being a company in this space is even if you intend to be compliant, um, sometimes it's difficult to know, right? It's, you don't, you don't, you know, you can spend a lot of money on, on lawyers, to, uh, you know, and, and probably five different firms will give you five different opinions um, because maybe the, the, the guidance isn't 100% clear. So um, I think, again, clarity would be welcome. Uh, um, and, you know, I think the entire industry is waiting for that. But again, I think that the intention and the heart of the SEC is in the right place. It just has to kind of go through the motions and, and provide that clarity in time. Yeah. And just point B, if I may add on uh, one component here is that in countries that are emerging that don't already have a established securities or otherwise you know uh, banking infrastructure they probably can and should be able to put in place frameworks that perhaps are more in tune with uh, technological development. You know, places like Vietnam with a more than 100 million, uh, you know, population of more than 100 million strong. Uh, and the rest of the regulatory framework is very new, very nascent. So out of those places, uh, it's probably more realistic to expect a more expedient uh, approach to a regulatory reform or, or regulatory catch-up game. Uh, but uh, in places like the UK, the US, uh, Australia, naturally things will take a little bit longer to see the laws catching up to, to technical changes. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, I guess those jurisdictions do actually have even more responsibility because historically, you know, smaller centers, you know, financial centers around the world tend to wait for regulations to be established in those big centers and then borrow it. Um, which is right, which is probably good for this part of the industry longer term, because ultimately, I think we would probably all agree that, you know, until we have global 
regulatory cohesion on how securities can be traded and transferred across jurisdictions at any time of day, then you know that's that is kind of you know the. Uh, uh, the, the the ultimate aim, I guess, but that is going to take time. But the fact that the UK is well slow down a bit now um, has been pushing forward. But especially, I think that it's so positive that the US is sort of taking this lead now because I think that will have more global implications. B, do you, as an investor, I mean, you know, a wide number of fintech firms in your portfolio. Do you? Is that a factor when you're kind of making your investment decisions? If where a company's based and which regulators they're going to be up against. So we, um, I guess, the, the the one of the strengths of of process is that we have we are a very very global firm, um, and uh, our DNA is actually uh, decidedly emerging markets, right? So I think we we probably view the world slightly differently than um, maybe some of our peers. Um, you know, we've been in in places like India for uh, well over a decade. We've been in China for two decades, um, and in Brazil, fifteen years. So you know, you you look at sort of our footprint and. Um, I would say we we probably venture into geographies that others have historically maybe been a little afraid of. So for us, it's less of a consideration. Um, having said that, um, you know, in blockchain specifically, we do favor geographies that have slight clarity. Um, you know, and and it's a spectrum, right? There, there, there's places where um, I think uh, the governments have been very very proactive and you know specifically giving guidance on cryptocurrencies because they want to become crypto havens. Um, and they're kind of capitalizing in this moment of time. Um, and then there's places where, you know, I think that the regulators, um, you know, are, are trying to be thoughtful, but maybe are, are moving a little bit slower. So, um, you know, we do like places, again, where we at least have some level of clarity um, around sort of the laws. But uh, I go back to, again, our, our DNA is emerging markets. We, we, we're not afraid of geographies, like maybe some other investors might be. Um, and so we're probably maybe a little bit more or if it, again, if it's a spectrum, we're a little bit more um, open to new geographies versus others. Okay, good to know. Good to know. So, Ken, let's uh, get back to Republic. As I said at the beginning, you know what um, I liked about your approach is that you kind of haven't rushed in. Um, you know, you know what needs to be applied uh, to uh, the Republic platform in general, and it seems to me that you've been working out. You know, what can you work with from existing regulations to best affect to start getting this out into the market? It doesn't necessarily have to be the full end to end dream and solution that we hope will kind of materialize over the coming years. Um, so you've taken, can you talk us through that approach? Because I know you launched a token last year. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Um, and you've also launched an interesting uh, product, which is a, a tokenized debt instrument as well. Could you tell us some more about that? You know, we look at uh, Republic as a player at the forefront of fundraising and of investing. So at any moment in time, aside from looking uh, in a clear way at the values as well as the, the, the hindrance of existing fundraising mechanism, we keep a close eye, a, a closed lens on what's next. So back in 2017, after seeing this whole non-regulated ICO boom, the one thing about the ICOs of 2016, 2017 was that they were basically the ultimate outcome of the potential of equity crowdfunding. You have projects around the world raising tens of millions of dollars from people around the world without VCs being involved, but obviously all done in a very non-compliant way. And so we had this question of like, what if, we apply a regulated framework around it to enable 
this to be done in a compliant manner. And of course, that's going to dampen uh, the ability to market to provide that broad exposure. Uh, but I think that's through all of these considerations and mechanisms that Republic ended up raising publicly using a token offering, uh, and then also raising in different ways from the venture community. Uh, I think there's a narrative that somehow if ICOs, if token economy were to succeed, that that will undo the value of VC, and there's nothing that's further from the truth. Uh, even though we are you know, financially robust, the value of having someone like Process and be on the board, the connection, the advisory uh, expertise, the consultancy, the, the, the whole global network is something that is a very different value than the value of a million customer backing you and supporting you. So understanding the value that comes with capital, the very different values that come with different forms of capital, uh, and choose and pick when and how much that is suitable for a business model is a highly individualized cases. But uh, you know, we as we grow uh, to where we are today, and I'm certain in the future as well, continue to consider what not only what is available, uh, but the potential. Uh, avenue for capital financing uh, that that has yet to mature, and if we can, we will continue to push that that uh, you know that that needle forward, uh, so to speak. Um, so, so the the security token you actually issued, what does that uh, give people? What does that give holders compared to if they were just holding straight share certificates? Core to any token economy is the purpose of incentivizing participants to act and participate and engage more. And if they engage more, they gain more. So when we were looking at the time Republic was 100,000 you know, uh, community members compared to over millions now, the only way that we can meaningfully provide that alignment and interest is that if we share a portion of our future revenue, our future profit with token holders, that means that if they come back to Republic to invest, if they invite friends to become members, if they send a deal, all of these things will go and contribute to the value of the tokens that they hold out of that general thesis that we ended up rolling out the very first uh, tokenized revenue sharing model. Uh, and that is the Republic Note token, I believe today is still the only one that's available to non-accredited investors. And um, you know, getting the, the, the support uh, of uh, BN Process is a tremendous validation uh, because up until now, the marquee institutions, the financial institutions, uh, the process of the world are still, uh, by and large, watching this industry intently, but in rare cases, um, formally back a project. Uh, and so that we have, you know, got that validation is something that not only is meaningful to Republic, but I think is certainly, and I hope is a weather bell for the entire uh, blockchain industry and certainly for the digital security sector. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think uh, back in 2017, uh, you know, with everyone claiming that VCs would be gone now that we have ICOs and uh, you know, you're still here, B, you're still here. Oh, yeah. It's all the job. It's good. Exactly. <laughs> We're pleased about that. And I don't think you'll be going away for a while. And I guess, you know, um, especially people that have worked on startups and gone through these funding rounds, you know, it's, it's a bit unfair because the level of support that you, the companies do get from their VC 
uh, investors is quite incredible sometimes. And I guess, you know, it's easy for people on the outside to say that maybe this bringing the two worlds closer together, you know, especially at a pre IPO stage when normally the VCs are kind of you know gone um, or just not as visible as they, they once were. Um, hopefully it will be a good education exercise and uh, uh, paint, paint the industry in, in a better light if it, if it needs to be, but you know, maybe just some of those perceptions will, will, will dissipate somewhat. Um, with that sort of, you know, being involved in the earlier stage companies while they're still getting support and the backing from the VCs as well. Um, so hopefully that some positives will come out of it and you will still be around for a while. Um, I mean, one of the things, um, just back to kind of be on, on your blockchain investments, um, maybe if you can just talk about, you know, how many you've made. I don't know if you can mention the companies that you've invested in um, and, you know, what it is you're specifically looking for now. You know, there's, there's so many so many verticals within the blockchain industry that you could be going after. I mean, none of us have enough time in the day or year to keep on top of everything. Um, what what are you what, what's kind of interesting you most at the moment? Sure, I, I guess I could, I'll give you a bit of history and context in terms of our participation in, in blockchain. I'll say that, and you'll have to fact check me on this, but I think we're probably one of the first, if not the first, public company to to actually invest in um, the blockchain space. Um, we um, really, I would say, started to look um, fairly early on, actually probably 2013, 14 timeframe, uh, first through our PayU division, which is our, our payments division, um, and then really sort of organizationally uh, started to get intrigued uh, about sort of the potential of the technology. Um, so why do we care about blockchain? So there's, uh, if you kind of look at sort of the, the history and the ethos of our company, um, we are sort of decidedly emerging markets. Uh, we're in markets where typically speaking, payments and banking tends to be broken, uh, heavy remittance markets. Um, these are again, places where I think the potential for what blockchain tends to offer is, is very, very large. Um, and so, you know, I think from, a, you know, a lot of the potential of the technology just speaks to the problems that we care about. Um, so we care about financial inclusion. We care about, uh, again, unbanked populations. We care about, uh, you know, global development. These are, again, things that we think that ultimately um, the te technology, uh, definitely not a, a, you know, a panacea in, in, in any way, but um, but can be helpful, right? And, and uh, solving some of the biggest sort of pain points that we've seen in, in the markets that we're in. So um, we've made several investments, some announced, some not, um, but uh, you know, we've, we've invested you know, between our ventures team and uh, our PayU division, again, our payments division, uh, and uh, about, I wanna say eight or nine companies. Um, some are in, in, in you know, uh, the exchange space, some are in, in, in the wallet space, some are in the NFT space, some are this. So they're, they're kind of, I would say, fairly distributed in terms of to, uh, the, topic, the topics and problems that they tend to, to address. Um, so I, I think, again, our interest is fairly broad. Um, in terms of sort of our outlook for blockchain going forward, I'll tell you sort of my, some of my personal challenges um, uh, in the context of, of looking for opportunities. One is um, obviously given the context of us as a public company, we care about compliance. Um, and so I think uh, finding teams that really are, tr you know, at the forefront of, uh, of compliance and working with the regulators to make sure that, you know, they are 
um, you know, just, just functioning within a, a certain framework is, is something that um, is very, very important to us. I think probably more so than, you know, uh, maybe the smaller blockchain funds or, you know, uh, you, know you, you definitely have pockets of money that are very interested in, in blockchain. Um, but, you know, compliance is first and foremost, very, very important to us. Um, two, I think um, there's a lot of noise in the space, right? So I think there is, um, at the end of the day, um, there is this incredible innovation around tokens, right? So, and, and the ability to fundraise using tokens. Um, but it also has created this sort of perverse incentive uh, for a lot of teams to actually manage to the price of the token, right? So what, is, what do I mean by that? I mean that there's a lot of projects that uh, tend to be very heavy PR, uh, very little substance, right? So um, I think one of the things that, you know, we, we definitely, um, I think any investor in the space, retail or institutional actually runs, runs into is being able to sift through that noise um, and, and um, also really kind of be a long-term investor versus, um, you know, a, a more kind of liquid strategy where, again, you, you're sort of waiting for the ups and downs of announcements. Um, so there's a lot of that type of value creation that's happening in the space being very long-term investors. I mean, we, we, we've been in some of our investments for over 20 years. Um, that isn't really in line with how we think about the world. Um, again, we, we believe in fundamental value. We don't believe in, you know, um, uh, crypto Twitter, you know, <laughs> uh, pumping a certain token and, and managing to, to announcements or a token price. So um, it's challenging, again, knowing that that is a sort of definitely a theme in the space to be able to find opportunities and teams that are very focused on creating fundamental value. Mm. Yeah. And do you, think, do you think that's something that, I mean, obviously, uh, investing in early stage companies, you until recently, maybe, you know, getting liquidity might take some time. Anyway, yeah. um, you know, mm -hmm. people are launching tokens and they're available on a DEX the next day now. Um, yeah. Do you think that will change the typical strategy of VCs um, going forward in terms of how long they do stay invested or at least, you know, divest more often than they did in the past when they have that option? Uh, I don't know. Like a lot of tokens have lockups, right? So I think there's kind of a minimum hold expectation that's set, you know, set set up from the outset. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of VCs there's the temptation, right? It's it's you know there you you look you can take your entire cost basis off the table, you know, um, again around certain announcements, and and you know if you're looking at it from a pure sort of risk adjusted basis, it makes sense to offload some of the tokens, right? Yeah. So um, that strategy, it, it's, it's definitely not something that I would criticize someone for for doing because it's, it makes sense, just mathematically it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think again, that the challenge is um, really stepping back and, and trying to look for pockets of value you know, five to 10 years from now. Um, and, and that's, um, I think probably one of the, the most difficult things to do in this space. Um, you also see, I think, there'll be a lot of projects. Um, actually, I think DEXs are, are, are great examples of this um, that just are fundamentally incredibly innovative. Mm. Um, but there is no way that the current version will be the final version, right? So you 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 kind of look at it and you're like, if I apply sort of a regulatory lens, if I try try to again look at the global financial system, the version of a Uniswap, Sushi Swap, all of these that DEXs that you see um, that exist today 
are definitely version ones, right? So, um, you know, having a longer term view on some of these sort of trends, um, I, I would say it's very challenging. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, again, going back to our lens is one where we are patient investors. We don't, you know, we don't have a liquid strategy. We're not looking to get out in a year or two's time. Um, you know, I think that's definitely something that, um, you know, I definitely think through every day and don't have a very good answer to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll wait and see. Um, I mean, just on that, on the compliance side, I mean, we've, you know, I agree with you completely uh, on on the, you know, defined general and DEXs um, in particular, and they will evolve um, and over time, and again, huge amount of potential, but very, very raw. Um, but I guess one difference I've seen, I mean, if I think back to like, 2013, 2014, uh, if you were on Reddit or uh, you know, Bitcoin Talk or something, and you, you even mentioned something like giving people identity on the blockchain, you'd have been kind of, you know, the ejector seat would have been hit and you'd be through the roof. But even, you know, speaking to some people working on DEXs, they're like, okay, if this is going to open up, there needs to be, it doesn't necessarily, it could be optional, but there needs to be com- the option of a compliant version um, or for people to be able to know the, uh, identity of who they're trading with, um, which would be nice if it's optional. That's great if people choose and you know, people will gravitate towards it. I don't think you should exclude people that don't want to use that. Um, and you mentioned that earlier, Ken, around you know the efficiencies that we can bring here. Obviously, we spoke about regular regulatory cohesion, but for me, you know, when people have ever whenever they've asked me, it's like, what's the killer app for blockchain? I've always said identity because it would just tie so many things together. Um, it will kind of you know, solve so many problems in conversations with regulators. Um, what are you saying? I'm still not seeing a huge amount happening there. I mean, are you seeing anything? Is this something you're looking to develop yourselves, Ken? Is it, looking, is it something that the industry should be focusing more together as a community? Um, what's your take on that? Uh, Paul, do you mean on the identity as in privacy identity, or do you mean uh, more on just the general compliance framework and the identity f- uh, involved in index or DeFi uh, trading activities? Well, I guess ultimately, especially if we're talking about, especially in a regulated space like security tokens, then being able to identify the participants is, is going to be critical and probably will become critical in DeFi markets at some point going forward. Um, so it's really that piece, um, and you know, people have spoken a lot about self-sovereign identity for for some time, and it is a tough nut to crack. And I think you know it's critical that this industry kind of cracks it because if you get regulators coming down and directing what needs to be done, when we're not going to end up with anything new. When I think we probably all agree that you know designed correctly, um, you know new identity systems that give the uh, the, the person themselves more control over what they're sharing is going to be an interesting thing. And if that plugs into all sorts of networks, it could open up a lot of things. Absolutely. Uh, I think when it comes to DAX and DeFi, uh, there's a substantial component of non-compliance or just ignoring the need to even consider compliance right now, which raises substantial risks for investor. But KYC AML, or Know Your Customer and Anti-Money Laundering, uh, is an area that is still slowly catching up to technology. The existing framework around banking standard for KYC AML is literally knowing you through you know, your ID, your passport, loading an image. Uh, but that's not the only way of doing it, right? At the end of the day, they just want to know that this is not a fraudulent transaction, an illegal transaction for improper purposes. So 
included different ways of verifying that with technology, you can enable KYC ML on chain and sharing validated identity without actually having to prove a passport photo. So the newer, more efficient ways that are currently in development, I have no doubt down the road, you're going to see, uh, you know, KYC ML depository system, kind of like a credit score system. Uh, and that if you're already in that framework, that different projects and different exchanges can leverage that know-how, that, that validation without having to prove identity time and time again. But currently that doesn't exist quite yet, and most DeFi, most DEX transactions ignore KYC ML in its entirety. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that we are looking very closely in collaboration with some of the ecosystem partners that we, uh, that we have, um, uh, including Binance and Algorand and Avalanche. Um, uh, and I'm you know, pretty optimistic that, that later this year, you're gonna see more clearly compliant framework for DAX and DeFi to continue to thrive, uh, but but that compliance component got to come uh, into the equation sooner or later. And I think those projects that the more you ignore that and the bigger the project is, the higher the risk uh, and the more near term the risk for those projects. Uh, these things you just can't ignore forever. The SEC can wait for five years and wait until you're a multi-billion dollar project and come with a hammer and are you ready and are your investors ready and expected to deal with that i think that's a question that all founders and all investors should have in mind yeah yeah i guess so and i mean i know we're short on time and it's something we can say for another day but we, we have got through without really discussing nfts but it's you know probably seeing some of the kind of mistakes repeated again and i'm sure the way some of these can be structured um, in very interesting ways, but then you are going to potentially, they are going to start looking like equities in some way as well. And so maybe that's a consideration that some of the kind of uh, early pioneers in that space should at least consider um, what that might look like going forward. But again, another interesting one, and we can, we can come back and talk about it because we are short on time. We'll wrap up uh, very quickly, Ken, what's on uh, your immediate roadmap over the next six months? Uh, there's no question that uh, secondary solutions uh, for traditional uh, equities as well as digital equities is uh, something that we have been thinking about and beginning to work on. Uh, and that's still, I think that's a component that is difficult um, but truly needed for mainstream adoption of private investing in general and specifically for digital securities in particular. So uh, we hope to be able to introduce uh, a, a framework and a version for that uh, over the next couple quarters or so. Exciting stuff. We will keep an eye out for it. And B, what are you going to be researching most? It doesn't even have to be blockchain. I feel like anyone that started to look at blockchain goes down the rabbit hole and never, <laughs> never looks back. So I, that's been my journey since 2015. It's just deeper and deeper into the space. Um, so a couple of things. I think at the forefront of my thoughts now, um, both in DeFi and I think in, in the NFT space as well, is just liquidity, right? Mm -hmm. These markets, um, especially in NFT, I, uh, NFTs, I, I worry a bit about the sort of the long tail, uh, especially. Um, you know, I think if you think about each NFT is a, is a market in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of think about um, 
I think what you're buying and ultimately how, uh, how you will come into liquidity, you know, eventually. So I think about that a lot, research that uh, quite a bit and sort of teams that are looking at that problem specifically, um, is, is something that I'm, I'm very, very interested about. Um, it applies obviously to, to something that, uh, Ken was just mentioning with secondary trading, uh, on the security token side as, uh, or even equity side is just, again, how do you bring liquidity to retail, right? Just again, mm-hmm. most retail investors aren't used to um, or aren't expecting to hold something for two decades, right? So, um, you know, creating a robust market around that is really interesting. Um, liquidity when it comes to DeFi, right? So it's, again, this this innovation with DEXs, with um LP tokens and all the things that you can do with them. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's something that, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, I didn't fully appreciate just how um, disruptive it could be, I would say probably until recently. Um, but it's something that I'm also researching in a very massive way. Um, so I would say liquidity as a theme is something that I'm very, very interested in. Yeah. Um, but second, I, and I think this is, I, you know, any blockchain teams that are innovating in this space, please do contact me as insurance. Um, so I think it's, um, I say this mostly as someone who is maybe at this point too, too personally invested in all things crypto, um, insurance products are definitely lacking. Um, and I think both on the, on the retail side and on the institutional side, um, there's just certain things that, um, you know, uh, it would be great to be able to insure against. Um, just knowing that, you know, this, this market tends to be volatile, this market tends to be prone to hacks. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you start to talk about real sums of money, um, you know, insurance products are definitely very welcome. So anyone that's really kind of innovating on the insurance front, it's uh, something I'd be interested to talk about. Okay, we will try and put you in touch with some people. Um, thank you for sharing your thoughts, guys. It's been a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, hopefully we'll get to speak to you again soon uh, and just wishing you both every success in these uh, very crazy but very exciting times over the, the next year or two ahead. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.